Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 11, The Balkan Wars. We last left off two weeks ago with our discussion of the Italo-Turkish War of 1911-1912, when the Italians, eager to establish themselves as a great power, attacked the Ottoman province of Libya in October of 1911. One of the more enduring legacies of that conflict was that it exposed Italy's armed forces as disorganized and unprepared for a general European war. Despite their advantage in armaments, stiff Ottoman resistance had kept the Italians bottled up along the Libyan coast and unable to advance into the interior. As international pressure began to mount for a speedy conclusion of the war, the Italians would only be saved from humiliation when the Turks found themselves facing a more dangerous threat coming from the Balkans. Just as the ink on the Treaty of Ochi was beginning to dry, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, and Greece formed an alliance and declared war on the Ottomans in October of 1912. The Balkan Wars, yes, there were two, began in the autumn of 1912 and would continue on well after the outbreak of the First World War. For nearly six years, the Balkans would be engulfed in conflict, and save for a brief gap from August 1913 to August of 1914, would be in a continuous state of upheaval. For the belligerents, the Balkan Wars were the opening phase of the First World War, as unsolved disputes would cast a large shadow over the crisis in July of 1914. So what was going on in the Balkans which made it ripe for such a war? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to turn back a few pages. Prior to the outbreak of the Balkan Wars, the Balkan nations, which we will be focusing on today, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, Greece, and to a lesser extent Romania, had been undergoing a period of nation-building and expansion. They had all been greatly influenced by the Italian and German independence movements of the 1860s and 1870s, and aspired to do the same for themselves. But due to their geographic location, they continually found that their efforts were restricted and hemmed in by the presence of the great powers. Austria-Hungary, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire all pursued active policies in the region, and would often interfere when it looked like the region was becoming unstable, the most recent example of this being the Bosnia-Herzegovina dispute. So to put it simply, the Balkan nations were attempting to undergo their own state-building program, which the other European powers had already gone through, but continually found their achievements limited due to the interests of their imperial neighbors. This mixture of suppressed Balkan nationalism and European hegemony led to a volatile situation in the region. National extremist groups, whose leaders were often educated in Vienna, Paris, or Berlin, began to pop up in many Balkan capitals. In the Serbian capital, Belgrade, the infamous Black Hand organization, of whom Gavrilo Princip would later be associated with, became a powerful voice in the Serbian military. Assassination attempts on Austrian and Ottoman officials were becoming commonplace, as agitation and unrest towards the status quo increased throughout the opening decade of the 20th century. Despite efforts from the Balkan nations, whether through intimidation or diplomacy, the great powers were unwilling to compromise, and the situation was left to simmer. After 1910, however, fortune was beginning to swing in Balkan favor because of two main developments. Russia, traditional allies of Bulgaria and Serbia and champions of Panslavism, had renewed their interests in pursuing an active policy in the region, and were eager to rebuild their damaged reputation following the annexation dispute of 1909. When the new Russian foreign minister, Sergei Zazanov, came to office in 1910, one of his first orders of business was to give assurances of his nation's commitment to the Slavic cause, and support their southern allies despite whatever protests came from Vienna or Constantinople. This may seem like it would be a tall order for Zazanov, 
but his efforts were helped by the pro-Russian governments which are already in power in both Bulgaria and Serbia. With the Russians there to help moderate talks between the two rival nations, it allowed for a more cordial kinship, and would prove to be the first step in the formation of the Balkan League, the alliance of nations which would declare war on the Ottomans two years later. The second development was what we talked about last episode, the Italian invasion of Libya. Now this sounds a little curious. Why would an Italian attack on the Ottomans in North Africa have any sort of bearing on the Balkans? The answer is actually quite simple. The Italian invasion, coupled with the annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, signified to the Balkan nations that the great powers had abandoned the idea of maintaining the Ottoman Empire, and that the status quo no longer mattered. If the Austro-Hungarians and Italians, both card-carrying members of the Triple Alliance, could get away with it, then certainly the Balkan nations could as well. Plus, with Russian support, it would give the Balkan states added credibility, which would deter the concert from seeing it as a violation of the international order. So inadvertently, the Italian landings at Libya were an important factor leading to the outbreak of the Balkan Wars. Because now, the Balkan nations found that the system which had kept them from greater autonomy was now fundamentally weakened, and the great powers would face a damning hypocrisy if they tried to interfere. One reason why the great powers had been able to maintain the status quo in the Balkans for so long was due to the intense rivalry among its nations. The Serbs, Bulgarians, Montenegrins, Greeks, and Romanians all had conflicting interests and were more at odds with each other than they were with the Ottomans or Austro-Hungarians. Although they had their individual goals, for example the Serbs wanted to expand west towards the Adriatic while the Montenegrins south towards Albania, the big pie in the sky for everyone was Macedonia. During this time, Macedonia remained a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire and contained a very mixed population of Slavs, Muslims, and Greeks which made it an ideal target for Balkan expansion, as each nation could claim the majority share along linguistic and cultural lines. What justified Balkan expansion into Macedonia was the International Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, or the IMRO for short, which since 1903 had been waging a terror campaign against the Ottomans. The actions of the IMRO were a clear sign that Macedonia was eager for liberation, and due to their high Slav population, the Bulgarians and Serbs felt it was their nationalist duty to liberate their suppressed brethren. The Serbs and Bulgarians felt propelled to take action when, in 1908, the young Turks in Constantinople had begun their policy of re-Ottomanization, in which Ottoman laws and customs were strictly reinforced. As a result of this, Ottoman police forces resorted to more oppressive measures, and suspected revolutionaries or agitators were obsessively hunted down. To the sensitive Balkan nationalists, these developments in Macedonia became the rallying cry for the various nations to set aside their past grievances and turn their frustrations towards the Ottomans. Between 1911 and 1912, with Russian support, negotiations between the Serbs, Bulgarians, Greeks, and Montenegrins resulted in the formation of the Balkan League, which came into existence following Montenegro's entry in September of 1912. So for a brief period, we now have a third alliance on our hands. But don't worry, because the Balkan League was probably the worst alliance in modern history. The agreements between the various governments were largely verbal, and did not contain any set terms as to how the war would be conducted, or who would get what after the Turks had been shown the door. Serbia and Bulgaria did arrive at an agreement concerning Macedonia, but even then, there remained a large disputed zone which would be left to the Russians to decide how that zone would be divided up. It's all a confusing mess, and I have no idea how they thought this would actually work. There was no central command, nor were there any war plans which called for the League to act in sync once the fighting had begun. So, spoiler alert, the Balkan League would become a significant casualty of the First Balkan War, as intra-alliance rivalries had undermined it since its very formation. Outside of the Balkans, news of the League's formation was met with shock. 
The Western powers and the Turks had always counted on the disunity of the Balkan nations to keep the region from ever becoming the site of massive upheaval. In Vienna, the Chief of Staff Konrad van Hutzendorf and Foreign Minister Leopold von Berchtold were quick to accuse the Russians of pulling the strings and trying to ignite an international crisis for their own gain. The Russian Foreign Minister Zazanov appealed to his Entente allies France and Britain by arguing that the Balkan League was a defensive agreement against German or Austrian aggression in the south. The French and British, still hung over from the Second Moroccan Dispute, agreed that a Balkan solution to Balkan troubles would be a nice change of pace, and trusted Zazanov at his word. But it was in Constantinople where news of the League was most troubling. The young Turks were still engaged in their increasingly bloody conflict with the Italians, and were caught blindsided by the events unfolding in the Balkans. In Constantinople, there was no mistake that the Balkan League was aimed directly at them, and due to their desperate condition of their empire, there was no way they would be able to fight the Italians and the Balkan League at the same time. It is no coincidence, then, that by October 18, 1912, the peace agreements between Rome and Constantinople were signed at Ochi, because on October 17, 1912, following Montenegro's lead, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece declared war. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in the details of the military campaigns, so I will just paint them with a broad brush. But if you are interested in the minute details, I do recommend Richard C. Hall's book, The Balkan Wars, A Preload to the First World War, which was a go-to source while I was preparing for this episode. There is a rough map which I've uploaded to the greatwarpodcast.podbean.com to just help give you a better sense of where these places are. The majority of the fighting took place in three separate theaters. The Bulgarians in Thrace, the Serbs and Montenegrins in Macedonia and Albania, and the Greeks in the Aegean and southern Macedonia. The type of battles fought were large set-piece engagements which featured the typical characteristics of industrial warfare. Artillery, machine guns, extensive trench networks, concrete fortifications, and aggressive bayonet charges. Basically, everything we saw during the Russo-Japanese conflict. The largest engagements took place within the first month of the war, between October and November, and were often fought in muddy and cold conditions, due to the severe October range which swept through the region. The Bulgarians would face the stiffest of Ottoman resistance throughout their campaign in Thrace. On the front line, just 32 kilometers west from Constantinople, the Bulgarians would lose nearly 12,000 men in just over 24 hours of fighting. By the end of November, both the armies of the Balkan League and the Ottoman Empire were exhausted from the brutal contests. The Bulgarians would be stopped on that same front line, 32 kilometers west from Constantinople. The Serbs had conquered most of northern and western Macedonia and had advanced as far east as the Adriatic Sea, while the Greeks had marched north to the city of Salonika and by December would defeat the Ottoman navy in an engagement near the Dardanelles. The Montenegrins would fare the poorest, as the majority of their forces remained unable to capture the important Albanian city of Skitari. But all in all, despite the intra-alliance bickering, the military conquests of the Balkan League were a resounding success. The Turks were forced to retreat at every battle, and save for a few pockets near Skatari and Adrianople, had been kicked from the Balkans almost entirely. Due to exhaustion and the onset of cholera which was now plaguing both armies, a ceasefire between the Bulgarians and Turks was reached by December 3rd, and was soon extended to the other belligerents. It was the swiftness of the Ottoman defeat which prompted the great powers to begin talking. In London, the Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey, rightly fearing that the Balkan conflict could end up dragging the great powers into a general war, urged a conference among the European and Balkan heads of state. Grey had been appalled when tempers between St. Petersburg and Vienna were again at the boiling point, and threats of mobilization were being thrown around. 
The Austrian foreign minister, Berchtold, apparently threatened that he could provoke a war in 24 hours, if he so desired to do so. From January to May 1913, a conference among European ambassadors met in London to figure out just what the heck they were going to do. The Russians, despite supporting the Balkan League, were wary of the Bulgarians being so close to Constantinople. If the Bulgarians captured the Turkish capital, it would not only be the final blow of the Ottoman Empire, but would leave the Bulgarians in control of the Bosphorus Straits, which was a natural gateway into the Black Sea and an important lifeline for the Russian economy. Russian interest in the Bosphorus was not a new development, as we discussed back in episode 9, but the general feeling in St. Petersburg was that if the Turks were to lose the Bosphorus, then it should rightly fall to Russian control, since the Russians had been making claims on the strait for decades prior. Although I find it hard to believe that no deal between Russia and Bulgaria could be arranged, I have to attribute this disagreement to Russian jealousy. Its smaller and weaker Balkan ally was now in a position to capture the prize at a moment's notice so Zazanov was sent scrambling for European support to convince Bulgaria to back down. Although Constantinople would be saved from being sacked, this debate proved to be a sticky situation throughout the negotiations. But it was the Austrian demands which made reaching an agreeable peace difficult. Due to the military successes of the Serbs, the Austrians were looking for a way to protect their southern frontier. The proposition floated by the Austrian ambassador Count Albert Mensdorf was the creation of an independent Albania to act as a buffer between Austria-Hungary and the Serbs and Montenegrins. The problem which quickly arose from this suggestion was that no one could agree just where the boundaries of this new Albania would be. Mensdorf and Berchtold were adamant that Albania should incorporate as much territory as possible, while the Russian ambassador, Count Alexander Beckendorf, wanted to keep it to an acceptable minimum. But the Russians found that getting their Balkan allies to buy this deal was a difficult sales pitch, due to the fact that the Serbs and Montenegrins were currently occupying the territories which would be included in the Albanian borders, such as the town of Skitari, still under Montenegrin siege. The borders of Albania would be debated for months, and no agreement would be made until May 1913, when the Montenegrin king, Nicholas I, decided to abandon his claim for Skitari, when the Austrians threatened to declare war on his small kingdom. The Treaty of London, signed at the end of May 1913, created the independent state of Albania and officially brought the First Balkan War to a close. The Balkan League had taken well over 100,000 casualties, while the Turks had lost 300,000 in return. But despite the enormous loss of life and the League's military victories, things were not completely settled. The Treaty of London had been imposed by the Great Powers, and when the League's ambassadors arrived to sign, they were horrified at what they saw. The details of this disagreement are not really important for our purposes, but in general, there was a mutual feeling among the Serbs, Montenegrins, and Greeks that the Bulgarians had sold them out, and secured a better peace for themselves due to their ability to wager Constantinople at the negotiating table. Bulgaria's former allies were seething, but due to international pressure, were persuaded to sign the treaty. The important thing to take away from all this is that almost immediately after the Treaty of London, the Balkan League collapsed in spectacular fashion. The traditional rivalries which had been so prevalent prior to the Balkan Wars again rose to the top. In Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro, a bitter resentment towards Bulgaria resulted in the formation of a new alliance aimed at retaking the lands which had been given to their former ally. As a result of this new animosity, the Bulgarians felt they were being backed into a corner and were surrounded by enemies on all sides. On June 29, 1913, despite attempts from Zazanov and St. Petersburg to moderate negotiations, the Balkans again erupted in war. This conflict, which is commonly known as the Second Balkan War, lasted just over a month. It was primarily fought between the former allies of the Balkan League. 
It started when Bulgaria launched a preemptive strike against the Serbs and Greeks in an attempt to catch their former allies off guard. This war was almost the mirror opposite of the previous one. The Serbs, Greeks, and Montenegrins were now all at war with the Bulgarians, and soon after, the Ottomans and Romanians declared war on the Bulgarians as well. The Ottomans were hoping to regain territories which they had lost during the First War, while the Romanians, who remained neutral in the previous contest, were after land south of the Danube, which had been promised by the Bulgarians prior to October 1912. Although the Bulgarian forces were well-trained and equipped with modern weaponry, they were unable to defend themselves against the combined weight of the five attacking nations. By the end of July, the Second Balkan War drew to a close, as the Bulgarians were forced to sue for peace. The post-war negotiations took place in two separate meetings. The first was in the Romanian capital of Bucharest, between the Balkan combatants, while the second was in Constantinople, which settled the war between Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. The Treaty of Bucharest was a disaster for the Bulgarians, as they were forced to cede large swaths of territories to the Serbs, Greeks, Romanians, and Montenegrins. The agreement with the Ottomans in Constantinople had allowed the Turks to regain nearly half their territories in Thrace, including the famous fortress city of Adrianople. By far and away, the clear victor of the two Balkan wars was Serbia, which, as you can imagine, was a nightmare come true for the Austro-Hungarians. Following the Treaty of Bucharest, Serbia had nearly doubled in size, by incorporating most of Macedonia and Kosovo, while still maintaining a military presence in northern Albania. Its military victories had a great impact on the region, as many Slavs living under Austro-Hungarian rule began to see the Greater Serbian Kingdom as a beacon of hope for future autonomy. As a result of this, Belgrade had begun to exercise a greater hand in the region, much to the chagrin of Vienna. The Serbian military presence in northern Albania was of particular annoyance, and it was not until October 1913 that Belgrade finally agreed to withdraw its troops from the region. Although the Serbian and Austro-Hungarian dispute over Albania was resolved peacefully, Albania continued to be the source of agitation between the two rivals. The Serbs saw it as an Austrian puppet, and nothing but an obstacle for the dream of a great independent kingdom. While in Vienna, the meddling of the Serbs in Albanian affairs was a sign that Belgrade would not be satisfied until the Habsburgs abandoned all of southern Europe. Tensions between the two rivals would continue to remain high throughout the winter of 1913 and well into the new year, as Serbian nationalists continued to view Vienna with hatred and disdain. The Balkan Wars, from October 1912 to August 1913, left a dangerous legacy in the region. The Ottoman Empire, which had existed in the Balkans since the 15th century, had lost nearly all their territory. The Bulgarians were embittered, having been swiftly defeated during the Second Balkan War at a cost of nearly 18,000 men and all their previously gained territory. But it was among the great powers where things began to take a turn for the worse. Although the Russians were pleased with the success of their Serbian ally, St. Petersburg remained upset that Austria-Hungary managed to impose their views throughout the conflict. Birch told Boast that he could provoke a war within 24 hours had led to the London Conference and the creation of Albania at the expense of Serbia and Montenegro, which had been detrimental to both Balkan and Russian interests. But what was most troubling for St. Petersburg was that the Germans were showing that they were willing to back the Austrians in future Balkan troubles. In the autumn of 1913, just after the Constantinople Treaty, Kaiser Wilhelm had personally assured both Konrad van Hutzendorf and Birchtold that Berlin would stand behind Vienna if the Austrians were to become embroiled in another conflict in the south. When news of this meeting arrived in St. Petersburg, Zazanov immediately reached out to London and Paris to consolidate Russia's position. 
The new French president, Raymond Poincaré, who had come to power following the second Moroccan crisis in 1911, was eager to solidify his nation's role in its alliance with Russia. You see, Poincaré, who will feature more in the next few episodes, was from Lorraine. And Lorraine was one of these so-called lost territories, which had been surrendered to the Germans back in 1870. Although Poincaré was not looking to avenge that historic humiliation, he was suspicious of Germany and was interested in bringing France into closer ties with Britain and Russia. The second Moroccan crisis had shown him that Germany would always be able to intimidate France unless it had firm support from one of its Entente partners. And with the situation in the Balkans becoming unstable, Poincaré understood that it was time to renew France's commitment to Russia. We'll end off this week with one more important point. Not only were the Balkan Wars the first all-European conflict of the 20th century, but they also represented the first time in which diplomacy failed to secure a lasting peace. The Treaty of London, although bringing an end to the First Balkan War, did not prevent the outbreak of the Second Conflict. The Balkan Wars were settled only through the efforts of the Balkan nations, which showed that the great powers were now having difficulty seeing eye-to-eye on problems which they previously would have been able to settle. This breakdown of communication should not be understated. The two crises over Morocco and the recent Bosnia-Herzegovina dispute had all been resolved in negotiations and cooler heads prevailing when it appeared that war was on the brink. But now, there appear to be gaps in the diplomatic system. This will become more apparent when we get to July 1914, as issues which were left unresolved in the Balkan conflicts would again become front and center. This is why historians like Richard C. Hall argue that the Balkan conflict should be interpreted as the opening phase of the First World War. Granted, they were not the same scale of what followed in 1914, but the situation in the Balkans from the fall of 1913 to the summer of 1914 would remain unchanged and the assassination at Sarajevo would be used as the excuse to address the problems which had been left simmering since the previous year. In the next episode, we'll take a brief tour around the Entente and Alliance to catch up with the British, French, and Germans, since we have not really spoken about them much since episode 8. My reason for doing this is to help us have a better understanding of the context in which the July crisis of 1914 took place. The jump into the aftermath of Franz Ferdinand's death without covering the key military and diplomatic developments beforehand would be historical suicide, so it would be much better to lay some of the groundwork first. But as a heads up, that episode will be up 10 days from now, and that will be the schedule which I will follow from here on out. During the two weeks between episodes, I did some soul searching and concluded that there was too much on my plate to keep myself on the weekly schedule which I had originally set out to follow. So instead of flying by the seam of my pants each week, those extra couple of days will hopefully help me deliver a better quality show, as opposed to squeezing everything into a 7-day schedule. So the Great War Podcast will be on a 10-day format from here on out. I hope I am not upsetting anyone for doing this, but take comfort in knowing that it is purely so I can deliver a better quality product onto you. So thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.